welcome to you today and we're going to look at the subject in this talk of the Gospel of Barnabas. Now I'd never heard of such a book in my life when I began outreach among Muslims many years ago until I got into a Muslim home in my hometown and the Muslims started challenging me and they said why is the Gospel of Barnabas not in your Bible? And I said the Gospel of who? I said I've never heard of that before and they said to me well of course you've never heard of it it's because you Christians have suppressed this gospel for many centuries even the Pope himself keeps one hidden under his throne in Rome at the Vatican and they said to me that it's because it is the only true gospel and in this gospel Jesus specifically predicted the coming of our prophet Muhammad and I was floored because I didn't know how to respond I never heard of the book before and to try and find out any information at the time about it seemed to be virtually impossible. This was 1973, before the Muslims had even begun in Pakistan publishing an English translation of it and sending it around the world. So right at that time, all we had was a little booklet that the Muslims had produced in South Africa uh, to give a couple of copies of texts of the Gospel of Barnabas. And here it was, this tremendous claim that uh, Jesus had actually foretold the coming of Muhammad by name and many other things that made him look, out, look like a Muslim prophet rather than the Christian saviour. <clears throat> what we're going to do today is to have a look at it. It was about a few months later that I actually managed to acquire one of the very first copies of the Gospel of Barnabas produced in Pakistan. And at the time, what they did was to take the only copy that existed in English and had been done by a couple called Lonsdale and Laura Rag in England about 1910. And they reproduced this thing as a, as a photo, litho, photocopy uh, reproduction of it. And fortunately, they left all Lonsdale and Laura Rag's notes at the bottom because those notes helped you very quickly to find out everything that was wrong with this book apart from just reading it which soon helped to give another considerable ammunition of evidence against it. Uh, I might mention to you that that was the only time in Pakistan where this gospel is usually reprinted to this day. It was the only time that they printed Lonsdale and Laura Rag's notes. After that first edition, they dropped them, and they've never put them in since. But unfortunately, we know today exactly what the origin of the book is, and we know what's wrong with it, and what I'm going to do this morning in this talk is just give you the evidences that show that the Gospel of Barnabas is to use the expression of uh, George Sale many centuries ago, uh, 1734, when he first mentioned it in his initial translation of the Quran, called the Gospel of Barnabas quite simply a bare-faced forgery. Well, let me give you something of the history of what we know about the Gospel of Barnabas and where it may have come from. Sale's translation of the Quran was accompanied by a preliminary discourse when he first produced it, as I said, in 1734. And he mentioned at the end, just briefly, he had a comment on this Gospel, and he said that it was different to the New Testament Gospels in many respects, but it certainly corresponded to a number of Islamic traditions especially relating to Muhammad himself. In his uh, <clears throat> preliminary discourse, in this little note and appendage to it, he said that there was a translation in Spanish that he was aware of and that it was in the possession of the Moriscos in Africa 
and that the only other one he knew was in Italian in the library of Prince Eugene Savoy in Austria. Um, <clears throat> to this day, we've never been able to track any Spanish uh, translation or even a portion of it, but the Italian one is known <clears throat> and has been translated into English. And as I mentioned, it was 1973 that the first Muslim translations of the book came out, and they caused quite a sensation in Pakistan and elsewhere around the world, particularly Egypt and other countries, where they seemed, where they believed that they had at last uh, found what was an original text going back to the time of Jesus that proved that Jesus all along had been a prophet of Islam and was not the Christian Son of God, because this gospel denies emphatically all the basic uh, foundation beliefs of the Christian faith. And this is why Muslims like it. It denies that Jesus was crucified, makes Jesus foretell the coming of Muhammad by name, uh, incidentally in even stronger terms than the Quran does, because in the Quran, in Surah 61 verse 6, uh, Jesus is recorded as saying that after me shall come one whose name is Ahmad. Uh, comes from the same root letters as Muhammad, meaning one who is praised. But anyone knows that in the Muslim world today, Ahmad and Muhammad are two different names. But in the Gospel of Barnabas, he actually predicts him by name, Muhammad. And Muslims say the Christian world suppressed it purely because of its Islamic character. The truth is that the Christian world never knew this Gospel of Barnabas until recently. And that the only reason why the Muslims are paying any attention to it <coughs> is because of the Islamic character that it has. They don't pay anything like the same attention to our other Gospels. First thing I must tell you about this Gospel is that it is very lengthy in comparison to the New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are similar length. Uh, this book, however, runs into no less than 273 pages. Much of the material is biblical, much of it is fanciful. There's some incredibly fanciful stories in the book that really just can't be true to history. There's a point in the Gospel of Barnabas where it claims that at one time three different armies gathered together, Jewish armies, to have a big fight somewhere in the northern part of Israel. There were 200,000 of them who were going to fight for the doctrine that Jesus was the Son of God. Another 200,000 were going to fight for the fact that he was only a prophet and another 200,000 who were rejecting him completely. And this three-way battle was about to begin when Pontius Pilate managed to stop them and persuaded them to desist from attacking each other. Uh, the fascinating thing about that story, apart from the uh, fanciful nature of three different groups prepared to go to war just over who Jesus was, and by the way, that was during his lifetime, the fanciful thing is the number of soldiers quoted, no less than 600 I think if the Jewish people had had that number of soldiers available in those days, they could have driven the Romans out of Israel forever. But the key thing about this book is its Islamic character. And it comes out again and again and again. For example, in Luke 17, verse 16, you read that a Samaritan was the only one of a number of people who'd been healed of leprosy who came back to Jesus and gave thanks to God for what had happened. <clears throat> Very straightforward story, and because the Samaritans were despised, uh, Luke made a particular mention of this, and Jesus uh, himself th thought it was very surprising that of all those who had been healed, only a Samaritan 
had come back. But the Gospel of Barnabas conveniently changes this into an Ishmaelite and says, no, it wasn't at all uh, a Samaritan. It was an Ishmaelite, which is highly unlikely because there were just no Ishmaelites in Israel, in Israel at the time. Uh, <coughs> Ishmaelites in those days were generally not recognized as they had been earlier. When you read way back in Genesis that the sons of Jacob handed Joseph over to the Ishmaelites, that's because uh, Ishmael, their grandfather, had only lived a couple of decades earlier. But by that time, the Ishmaelites were just not known as a people, just as they're not known as a people today. But the Gospel of Barnabas conveniently gives us an Islamic character and says that uh, he was an Ishmaelite. You can see the moment you begin to read this book that the character of it is Islamic or deliberately, intentionally Islamic. Let me give you some of the <coughs> teachings of this gospel that particularly suit the, the Muslim faith. And you can see here the obvious forgery from a Christian perspective. Later I'll give you evidences as to why we know for sure this book is a forgery. But in this respect, just the Islamic nature of it, that obviously whoever compiled this book wanted to make it look like a Muslim book. Now the first one is that Jesus again and again in this book specifically denies that he is the Son of God. Uh, the Gospel of Barnabas repeats Matthew 16 verses 13 to 20. The famous story where Jesus turned to the disciples when he'd gone away with them for a while to a place up in what is today Lebanon. <coughs> and he asked them at dinner one evening, who do the people say that I am? And <coughs> they said, well, well, some say you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. But in the Gospel of Barnabas, although the story is repeated, uh, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, the Son of God, the Christ. Jesus is supposed to have declared, be gone and depart from me <clears throat> because you are the devil and you are looking to cause me offense. And then he is uh, reputed to have told all his disciples to beware because I have won from God <coughs> a great curse against those who believe this. And that's in paragraph 70 of the Gospel of Barnabas. So you can see the whole answer of Jesus is turned around 180 degrees. Not only denies that he is the Son of God, but in typical Islamic style, brings in a way the curse of Allah on anybody who suggests that he is the Son of God. Then again, you find in the Gospel of Barnabas that Jesus was not crucified. In this book, the Gospel of Barnabas, it states that Judas Iscariot was crucified. Uh, now that's very uh, convenient because in the Muslim world, as we know, in Surah 4, 157, the Quran expressly denies that Jesus was crucified. And then it has a rather vague statement. It just says, but so it was made to appear to them. <coughs> and it gives no detail as to what that could possibly mean. But from that, the Muslim world fashioned the doctrine of substitution, borrowing somewhat from the earlier Gnostic texts, which suggested that the Christ Jesus had not actually been crucified, but had ascended to heaven, and that only the man Jesus was crucified. 
And the Muslims have taken that further and said that not even the man was, that he was taken up to heaven alive and that someone else was crucified in his place. But even the Muslim world never known who that person might be. But over these centuries, it became convenient to make a scapegoat here and say that it was Judas Iscariot. Uh, this was to obviate the suggestion that it was a very strange thing God was doing to, to do what the Muslims believe happened, and that is that somebody else who was standing by was made to look like Jesus, that Allah changed this person's features completely, and that person was crucified instead. And of course that lends itself to the obvious charge, not only that God was deliberately deceiving the people, <clears throat> but that an innocent bystander was convicted of crimes that he certainly hadn't committed himself and was crucified in Jesus' place for no justifiable reason. So it became convenient to say, oh, well, let's make a Judas Iscariot. Then that gets rid of that. Then we can say that uh, <coughs> it was somebody who uh, uh, obviously deserved his fate. Now that idea came much later in Islam, that it was Judas. But here in the Gospel of Barnabas, we find that Judas is the one who was actually crucified. Uh, read these words to you. He was so changed in speech and in face to be like Jesus that Barnabas and the other disciples standing by actually believed that he was Jesus. Then, as I said, the third Islamic character of the book is that Jesus predicts the coming of Muhammad by name in the book. In many places, by the way, uh, give you one example in paragraph 112. But when Muhammad shall come, the sacred messenger of God, that infamy will be taken away. That is that he was crucified. So it's all very Islamic and all very unbiblical. And to go further, as you might expect, <clears throat> you'll find that the covenant that God made through Abraham, according to the Gospel of Barnabas, in <clears throat> paragraph 191, was made with Ishmael, not with Isaac. But again, this is contrary to Surah 29:27 in the Quran, where we read that the Nabuwa and the Kitab, that means that the line of prophethood and scripture was ordained through Isaac. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches, that the covenant God made with Abraham <coughs> was through Isaac and Jacob and not through the line of Ishmael, uh, the son of Hagar. The next thing we look at is the evidence <clears throat> that this book from within now, we're looking at internal evidence to see that this book is a medieval forgery. When we go back to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, we find that a number of texts were declared to be inauthentic, forgeries and so on. Uh, there's a huge number and many of them we can't <coughs> even to this day identify. But one of them named is the Gospel of Barnabas. But there's no record of what it was or what it taught. As you can expect at the Decretum Galatianum, where this, is, uh, actual, this book is actually mentioned by name, and the Muslims love this because they say, there you are. You see, right back there, there was a Gospel of Barnabas mentioned that was uh, rejected as false, and so it must be this one. Um, question is whether there is evidence within the gospel that you could possibly date it back that far and say that it was the same book. But in fact, when we look at this gospel, the one in our hands today, you can see that it has recent origins, probably between the 16th and 17th century. It's not more than a couple of hundred 
years old. And that is a long time after both Jesus and Muhammad. To begin with, we will start with the subject of the centenary jubilee. In Leviticus 25.11, you read these words. A jubilee year shall that 50th year be to you. And this was something that God had ordained for the nation of Israel. It was a time when all slaves had to be released. And at the time they were told that after seven weeks, seven years, in other words, seven times seven is 49, <coughs> the 50th year had to be a special year in the nation's history. Unfortunately, this didn't last too long and it fell away in Jewish life. But about 1300 AD, Pope Boniface VIII decreed that the Jubilee year should be reintroduced, but that it should only be held at the turn of a century. In other words, once every hundred years. There we had the turn of the century itself, 1300 AD. After his death, however, Pope Clemens VI decreed that the Jubilee year should revert to every 50 years. That was following the biblical decree. He, he wanted to have a jubilee year in his time as well, in his tenure. And thereafter, there was talk of receding it even further. In the Gospel of Barnabas, this saying is attributed to Jesus. And then, through all the world, will God be worshipped and mercy received, insomuch that the year of jubilee, which now comes every hundred years, shall by the Messiah be reduced to every year in every place. Now, this is very interesting because this passage that we've just read out of the Gospel of Barnabas is very similar to what we now know about the history of the Jubilee year in Roman Catholic history. There's a clear anachronism here because there was only one time in history when anybody spoke of a, a Jubilee year coming once a century. That was Pope Boniface in 1300 AD. But here you find in the words of Jesus that the year of Jubilee, which now comes every hundred years, will be reduced. This means <clears throat> that the Gospel of Barnabas cannot date earlier than 1300 AD. And then just as you find that after that, that the subsequent Pope wanted to reduce it to 50, and there was talk of then reducing it to every 25 years, so Jesus is recorded as saying that by the Messiah it will be reduced to one year in every place. Uh, this makes it quite obvious, the anachronisms here and the comparison of them, that this gospel is a forgery, and at this stage we can date it <coughs> certainly no earlier than 14th century AD. The second thing here that puts the date of this gospel into medieval times is that it quotes consistently from Dante's Inferno, famous work that was well known throughout Catholic Europe in the Middle Ages, <coughs> broken up into three parts, the Divina Commedia part of it, into hell, purgatory, and heaven. And the Gospel of Barnabas shows a very clear dependence on this book at different times. In the 23rd paragraph of the book, we find this saying of Jesus, Readily and with gladness they went to their death, so as not to offend against the law of God given by Moses his servant, and go and serve false and lying gods. Well, it's an unusual expression, that, but it's the exact expression that you find in Dante's Inferno in the chapter 1 and section 72. Dei falsi e lugiardi, the Italian expression, 
And Jesus, according to the gospel, uses it again in paragraph 78. In fact, even Herod is recorded as using the same expression in paragraph 217. It's a direct quote from Dante. And once again, has no precedence before that time. So it helps us to date the Gospel of Barnabas to sometime around the Middle Ages. And then you find also that heaven and hell in the Gospel of Barnabas follow Dante's descriptions. Once again, Jesus is recorded as saying to Simon Peter, this time in paragraph 135 of the Gospel, Know ye therefore that hell is one, yet it has seven centers, one below another. Hence, even as sin is of seven kinds, for as seven gates of hell has Satan generated it, so there are seven punishments therein. Now this is precisely the description that Dante gives in the fifth and sixth cantos of his Inferno. Speaking of the heavens, the Gospel of Barnabas states that they are nine and that paradise itself is greater than all of them together. That's paragraph 178. This also parallels Dante, who also speaks of nine heavens with an empyrean, uh, a tenth heaven above them all. However, these depictions of heaven contradict the Quran, which in Surah 2 verse 29 teaches that after Allah had created the earth, he fashioned paradise's seven heavens. Once again, the comparison is too obvious. The, the, the striking resemblance between the Gospel of Barnabas and Dante's Inferno clearly indicates dependence of the latter, or of the former text on the latter one. Then we go to the medieval environment of this Gospel. In many places where the Gospel betrays its origin as being somewhere in southern Europe rather than in Israel. For example, when it talks about climates and seasons in Israel, it actually describes the climate in Italy, the climate in Spain, particularly in summer. In paragraph 169, Jesus is recorded as turning to his disciples and saying, look how beautiful the fields are in summertime. If you've ever been to Israel in the middle of summer, you'll see that the fields are somewhat parched because Israel has a winter rainfall season. Whereas it is in Italy and in Spain, those parts of the world, that you find that the fields turn beautifully green in summer. Palestine is clearly not the background of this book. Then you find in paragraph 152 that according to the Gospel of Barnabas, wine was stored in Israel in those days in wooden casks. Uh, well, that's fine. That's what was done in Europe in the Middle Ages, but not in Palestine, not in Israel. We know from Matthew 9 verse 17 that wine was stored in skins. Jesus spoke of new wine put into new wine skins. It was not stored in wooden casks. Those were unknown at that particular time in Israel. And then you find a rather remarkable uh, series of passages which describe Capernaum, Nazareth, and the passage from Jerusalem up to that area. In paragraph 20 of the Gospel of Barnabas, we read, Having arrived at the city of Nazareth, the seamen spread through all the city everything that Jesus had done. And from there, he went up to Capernaum. Well, I've been to Israel, and I'm not quite sure how you can go up to Capernaum from Nazareth on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually the other way around. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, and Nazareth is up in the hills above the, uh, the lake. 
it's quite clear that this is a medieval barefaced forgery. Another place in the Gospel of Barnabas, it says that the people sailed from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Uh, it must have been a massive flood of some strange proportions at that time to be able to do that because the pathway, the road from Jerusalem to Nazareth goes through some of the most desert regions in the world. I'm not quite sure how you could send a sailing ship up from Jerusalem to Nazareth and certainly nothing in history to indicate otherwise that you could actually do it. But there are other evidences that show that this book is a forgery. Muslims say that it must be the true gospel because it teaches that Jesus was not the final messenger of God but rather that that honor would have been reserved to Muhammad who followed him. And of course that, as I say, is the reason for Muslim interest. But one of the things that proves that this book is actually not authentic is the way in which it twists the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus and fits it to Jesus and Muhammad. For example, many of the expressions that you and statements of John in the Gospels are taken over into this Gospel and put in the mouth of Jesus. When John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to untie his shoelaces. After me comes one who is greater than me. Quite clearly, John is talking about Jesus. But on the other hand, what the Gospel of Barnabas does is that it makes Jesus say the same thing about Muhammad. John the Baptist is not mentioned in the Gospel of Barnabas. And that is very strange because he's mentioned in the Quran. Uh, Yahya is his name. Yahya, every Muslim knows Yahya, alayhi salam, John on whom be peace. In fact, much of the story of John is repeated in the Quran. So it is very, very strange to find that John the Baptist drops out of this book completely, especially as the Gospel of Barnabas is ten times the length of the average New Testament Gospel. Another saying, John 1.23, where Jesus, where John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Again, this is put in the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Barnabas. And the whole conversation around it as well is the same. Paragraph 42. Uh, John 1.20, when Jesus um, is uh, again speaking in this Gospel, you find that from John 1.20 in the actual Gospel of John, he denies that he was the Messiah. But now this is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Barnabas. I am not the Messiah. I am indeed sent to the house of Israel as a prophet of salvation, but after me shall come the Messiah. Now that's almost word for word a repetition of what John said about him. Uh, and not only that, the question here is who exactly was the coming Messiah to be? Because Christians have always believed that the Messiah was Jesus. Uh, the Jewish people always expected the Messiah to arise in Israel. Why is it that uh, these people couldn't see that the Messiah was going to come uh, out of the descendants perhaps of Ishmael or the Arabs? Well, in this gospel, Jesus identifies the Messiah clearly. He says, the name of the Messiah is admirable. God said, wait, Muhammad, for your sake I will create paradise. Muhammad is his blessed name. That's in paragraph 97. What the gospel writer here, if you want to call him that, whoever compiled this book, does is to actually contradict the Quran, not only the Bible. Because in the Quran, it also clearly teaches that Jesus is the Messiah. There's never been any dispute between Muslims and Christians on this point. 
In Surah 3, verse 45, you read these words, O Mary, lo, Allah gives you good tiding, glad tidings of a word from him, whose name is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, illustrious in the world and the hereafter. The expression used here is Al-Masih. And you find the word Masih, obviously the same as the Hebrew Mashiach, used in the Quran no less than 11 times. It appears again in Surah 4, 171 and all over the book. Sometimes it's just Al-Masih, times it's Al-Masihu Isa, uh, whatever the form given to it, no question about it, that in this book the Messiah is Jesus, that is the Quran. So you find, as I say, not only does the uh, Gospel of Barnabas contradict the New Testament Gospels, but it contradicts the Quran. But most interestingly at this point, it contradicts itself. Uh, in the beginning of the book, <clears throat> it's, in its introduction, it speaks of Jesus, the Nazarene, called Christ, and says it is the true gospel of Jesus called Christ. It seems that the writer of this book didn't even know that the expression Christos in Greek, which we translate as Christ, is just the Greek translation of the word Messiah. So while it denies that Jesus is the Messiah, it calls him the Christ. And that is really strange. In fact, one wonders how Muslims can really hold this book up at all. Its, its contradictions are so obvious. The, the, the errors in the book, the mistakes, the twisting, the dishonesty is so transparent that you would think that they would just, in all sincerity, just abandon this book and say, well not something we want to rely on. We've got our Quran, we'll leave it at that. But I want to show you other contradictions between the Gospel of Barnabas and the Quran. The birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Barnabas follows a biblical description to some extent, but in paragraph 3 we read these words, The virgin was surrounded by a light exceedingly bright, and she brought forth her son without pain. Nothing in the New Testament to support that, but in Roman Catholic history, the idea of Mary having been suddenly almost transfigured and that she had a painless birth when Jesus was born is quite common. And there again, you've got proof of the medieval origin of the Gospel of Barnabas. But the most important thing here is that it directly contradicts the Quran. There's no way around this. In Surah 19 and verse 23, the Quran says, And the pangs of childbirth drove her to the trunk of a palm tree. <laughs> It's, there really is no way you can reconcile a contradiction like that because the one book, the Gospel of Barnabas, expressly states that she had a painless birth and the other one equally expressly states was the very pains of childbirth that drove her to the bottom of a tree. <clears throat> there are many Muslims today who recognize the fact that the Gospel of Barnabas is a forgery, but it should be clear by now that every Muslim should do so. Here's another contradiction between the Gospel of Barnabas and the Quran. Um, in this case, it's about the destiny of the angels of God at the end of time. Para 53 in the Gospel of Barnabas, it reads, On the fifteenth day, the holy angels shall die, and God alone shall remain alive. <laughs> well, neither the Bible nor the Quran know anything about the death of all the angels of heaven, or for any reason why they should die. But the Quran states that eight of them will bear the throne of Allah on the last day. And that is Surah 69, verse 17. 
Again, the Gospel of Barnabas states that on the 13th day of the final period before the end, all mankind will perish and every living thing on the earth will die. It's paragraph 53. But the Quran states that all men will be alive until the last day, the day of judgment when the trumpet will sound. And Surah 80, verse 37, every man will have enough concerns on that day to make him heedless of anyone else. So you can see again the numbers of contradictions between this gospel and the Quran are so many that Muslims really have no grounds to believe at all that this book could possibly be authentic. But let's ask the question, what is the original authorship of this book? Who could possibly have compiled it? As we note, uh, it dates from the Middle Ages somewhere, so it couldn't have been Barnabas himself. But there are certain reasons from the scriptures why you can see that Barnabas could have no backing to this book whatsoever, not even in history. It cannot even be an adaptation of whatever that gospel of Barnabas that was that was um, rejected 300 years after Christ. In this gospel, Barnabas happens to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, whereas, of course, as every Christian knows, in the New Testament, Barnabas only appears on the scene after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. First mention of him is in Acts 4, 36 to 37, where it says, Thus Joseph, who was surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In fact, it was only when this man Joseph encouraged the early church by donating the proceeds of his sale, of his property, that he was given the surname Bar-Nabas, meaning the son of encouragement. And from there on, he becomes a prominent personality in the record of the initial development of the church. And of course, as you know, he's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letter to the Galatians, for example, Galatians 2 verse 9. But he was most certainly not one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, whose names are all recorded in Matthew 10, from 2 to 4, and Luke 6, from 14 to 16. He's not mentioned at all in the four Gospels, and the composer of this forgery has, as it were, left his fingerprints on the text by putting in what to me is a glaring anachronism. In the Gospel of Barnabas, Jesus is alleged to have called him by name on numerous occasions. And I'll give you one little example from paragraph 19. Jesus answered, Be not sore grieved, Barnabas, for those whom God has chosen before the creation of the world will not perish. So such an address before Jesus ascended to heaven is impossible if Barnabas only, not only appears in the New Testament after the ascension of Jesus, but even gets his title. Barnabas was not a name, it was a title, son of encouragement. What is the probable authorship of this book? Have we got any evidence to tell us who might have written it? There's very little, but it does tend to give us certain impressions, and I'll tell you what the evidence is. Firstly, the record of what we know of the introduction to the Spanish version of the gospel states that it was a translation of the Italian version done by an Aragonian Muslim named Mostafa da Aranda. 
George Sale, who records this, we don't have the uh, manuscript evidence of this today from Sale, but he adds a note that in the preface to the Italian version, a certain Fra Marino, a Roman Catholic monk, is said to have heard of the existence of the Gospel of Barnabas and happened to come upon it while looking through the library of Pope Sixtus V, who was conveniently asleep in his presence. Apparently the Pope had fallen asleep while he was talking to Fra Marino, and Fra Marino looked around to see if he could find possibly this book which he had heard was hidden there somewhere. And coincidentally and very conveniently, the first book he pulled out of the Pope's library was the missing gospel of Barnabas. Well, whoever the author of this gospel was, one thing we know, he was very familiar with, with, with Spain and its environment. He could have been possibly a Spanish Muslim, forcibly converted to Christianity around the time of the Inquisition, who took private revenge by compiling an Islamic gospel. Or he might well have written it first in Italian to give a more authentic appearance before subsequently translating it into his own language. There's clear evidence of Spanish influence in this quote attributed to Jesus from Gospel of Barnabas, paragraph 54. For he who would get in change a piece of gold must have 60 mites. Now the Italian div version divides the golden denarius into 60 minutai. These coins were of Spanish origin and they date from pre-Islamic Visigothic period and they certainly show a Spanish influence behind the gospel. But it is far more likely that it was Fra Marino himself who wrote this gospel out for reasons known best to himself. Firstly, the author was familiar with Italy, and that is where the, where the Vatican is. And Fra Marino was actually a historical personality. We have independent evidence, not only of his existence, but even a certain experiences in his life. He was known to be an associate of Fra Peretti uh, of his time, who was a key Inquisition figure before he became Pope Sixtus V. And that's the very person in whose presence Fra Marino is said to have been sitting when he found the Gospel of Barnabas. There were certain things that Fra Marino got up to, a lot of malpractices at his time that made him fall out of favor with not only uh, Peretti, but also with his colleagues. And so he didn't get any promotions. He never went further in the Roman Catholic Church than where he was. But Peretti managed to go up and up and up until he became the next pope. And it is possible, can't be certain, but it is possible that Fra Marino composed this gospel almost as an act of revenge against Peretti. And I mention again, just remember this convenient story that he found the gospel in Peretti's own library, trying to sort of, uh, who now is Sixtus V, the Pope himself. At this time, it looks like Fra Marino says, look here for the Muslim world. Let me get my own back on this Pope who's uh, just put me down. Um, here's this gospel of Barnabas. Here's a true Islamic gospel. And uh, blame it on the Pope, Sixtus V. He's the one who's been hiding it in his library all the time. Well, we're not sure. We're speculating a little bit here just on the limited evidence that we have. But the one thing that you can be certain of is that whoever the author of this gospel is, it wasn't Barnabas. And what the gospel shows, if you read it through from beginning to end, this is my impression of the book, is that you just cannot compose a life of Jesus, a gospel history and record, based on biblical material 
have it Islamicized and make it look authentic. Uh, that's something I'm aware of just when I read the four Gospels in the New Testament. I'm not going to go into detail, but just give you it as an impression that if you know the Islamic Jesus as a prophet of Islam and nothing more, no different to the other prophets who came before him, and then read the Christian Gospels, you just cannot synchronize the two. And this is an effort to do so, this Gospel of Barnabas, and in my view, a most unsuccessful one. I'm reminded of the words of the officers of the Pharisees in John chapter 7, when the chief priests sent these people to go and arrest Jesus. And they came back and Jesus wasn't with them. And they said, why didn't you bring him? And they said, nobody has ever spoken like this man before. And that's how I see it. The sayings of Jesus are so unique. They are they're divine sayings. They're the sayings of a man who doesn't think that he's just somebody in the line of a succession of prophets, but rather of a man who states divine truth as coming from himself, as in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus constantly says, you've heard it was said in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, but I say to you. I mean, that a man could only say if he believed that he had divine authority within himself, not authorized, but within himself, I say to you, to actually reinterpret those Ten Commandments. And of course, all the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, of himself as the Son of God and so on, are so inconsistent with the Muslim concept of him being no more than a prophet that you can see in this Gospel where the writer tries to turn that around, keep the biblical material intact, but reinterpret it. He really doesn't make much as a success of his enterprise. Let's conclude with what the book of Acts talks about says about Barnabas, particularly in relationship to the Apostle Paul. I say this because the Gospel of Barnabas begins with a statement that many being deceived of Satan under pretense of piety are preaching most impious doctrine, calling Jesus the Son of God, among whom is Paul, who has also been deceived. Uh, at the very end of the book, Paul is again accused of being deceived for the same reason. It says uh, that he, once again, is the one who is preaching against circumcision and he's the one who's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God and he's completely deceived. Um, the reason I'm going to close the book with what the book of Acts says, this talk, with what the book of Acts says about uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas is because the two of them were actually the closest companions and the, the least likely person to have spoken up in any way or written a book uh, contradicting Paul's teaching is Barnabas himself. Just before I do, I want to mention to you one verse in the book of Acts that Muslims fasten onto at this point, and that is Acts 15, verse 39, where it says, There arose a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas, so that they separated from each other. And Muslims say, Oh, there you are, you see. They couldn't agree with each other, and now we know why. Because Barnabas differed with Paul on all the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Well, if you read this passage in its context, all it tells you is that they were differing on one person, not Jesus, but on John Mark, young man who had accompanied them on their first journey into Asia Minor, what is Turkey today. But we read from Acts 13, verse 13, that he actually let them down and that he returned to Jerusalem and didn't go on with them into Asia Minor. And this contention arose on the second occasion because Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them again. 
And Paul just very discreetly said, I don't think it is wise to take somebody who's let us down once before. And Barnabas had a dispute with Paul about this. And what we then read is that Barnabas took Mark and he went down with him to Cyprus, whereas Paul chose Silas as his companion instead. In Acts 15, 39 to 40, he accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. So it's interesting to see here that the division between Paul and Barnabas was only over Mark, not over Jesus. On the contrary, whenever the identity of Jesus, particularly as the Son of God, <coughs> comes up in the book of Acts, Barnabas is the man, first man to stand by the Apostle Paul. When Paul first walked into the synagogue of Damascus and proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God, you find that he becomes now the champion of the new Christian gospel, even though Peter and the other disciples were preaching the same thing. But the apostles in Jerusalem were a bit uncertain about Paul. They did hear that he was <clears throat> preaching against circumcision, and some of the Judaizers in Jerusalem subsequently said to him, you know, you seem to be undermining the law of Moses, and you're confusing the people, telling them not to observe that law. And then we find that it was Barnabas, and I read these words to you from Acts 9.27, that it was Barnabas who stood by him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And Barnabas was in Damascus at the time, so he knew exactly what Paul was saying. Then we find that when the disciples at Antioch <coughs> wanted somebody to come and instruct them, the apostles sent Barnabas there to go and do so. But Barnabas thought, I can't do this alone. I'm not actually sufficiently equipped to do, to do this. So he decided to look for a companion to assist him. Now, who did he choose? The apostle Paul. He went all the way to Tarsus in Asia Minor to find him. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And what follows is very significant here. In Acts 11 verse 26, it reads, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch the disciples were for the first time called Christians. And I like that because it doesn't say Muslims. Barnabas was a, a companion of Paul and the common teaching of both of them resulted for the first time in the people who heard them and believed the gospel in being called Christians. Um, lastly, they both rejected circumcision as being necessary for any converts. According to the Gospel of Barnabas, Jesus is reputed to have said in paragraph 23, leave fear to him who has not circumcised his foreskin because he is deprived of paradise. But in Acts 15 verses 1 to 2, we read these words. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But when Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And you can see again Barnabas siding with Paul on the side of those who were against circumcising Gentile believers. Uh, Paul goes on in Galatians to mention that when he and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem, they took Titus, an uncircumcised uh, Greek believer in Jesus, as a test case. And Paul says 
that the, the apostles at Jerusalem gave to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And they did not require Titus to be circumcised. They accepted that the gospel they were preaching and what they were doing was 100% correct. So you can see that Barnabas and Paul were closest of companions and that they agreed on everything that they taught. There was no dispute between them on the doctrine of Jesus being the Son of God. It's very easy to prove that the Gospel of Barnabas is a forgery. It's very unfortunate that it was ever written. One of the things that I'm satisfied with, ironically, was that it was not actually compiled by a Muslim. It was certainly compiled somewhere in southern Europe, almost certainly by a renegade from Catholicism or somebody who had an axe to grind, and almost as a sport or whatever he was doing, he just decided to compile a, an Islamic gospel. It didn't make much of a success of it, but unfortunately he's left a legacy and a problem which exists to this day. But the evidence is so overwhelming that actually the Muslim world should really reject this book and accept that it in no way can be possibly a, an authentic record of the life of Jesus, particularly that he was a prophet of Islam rather than the Son of God.